Hey Graham, it's been a really long time since we had a podcast from you. In fact, that's almost a year now. What is going on with that? Well, Graham, what can I tell you? It's hard enough being a freelance dozer and trying to make a living in these uh, depressed economic times that we're all living through. It takes me a couple of days to put a podcast together, and I guess I just haven't been willing to commit the time. But enough of the excuses. We're here now. Let's get on with it. Here's Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number 50. I've recently returned from presenting at both the Canadian and the American Society of Dowsers Conventions, where I was guest speaker, and I also ran a full-day workshop at the ASD. But in Peterborough, Ontario, at the Canadian Convention, I was very kindly hosted by Dave Kane and his wife Ricky, who are incredibly knowledgeable folks, and we had some very wide-ranging conversations around the kitchen table of an evening. Now, Dave and Ricky are both passionate advocates for Ormus. Now, I've heard of this stuff on a few occasions, but never really paid it much attention before meeting Dave and Ricky. It's claimed that Ormus is a new state of matter that has a very distinctive atomic structure, and many substances exhibit these Ormic properties, and advocates claim all sorts of benefits for it, ranging from uh, lucid dreaming and clearer thinking, to pain relief, faster healing from injuries, better plant growth, I mean, you name it. Well, Dave and Ricky have been dowsing and researching this stuff for many years, and they make their own and they shared some pretty amazing accounts of how it has changed their lives. And lucky for us on the podcast, Dave was giving a talk about Ormus at the convention, and he graciously agreed to let me record it for the podcast. So, rather than me rabbiting on, I'll let Dave explain further. Uh, As Ricky and I have worked for the last 11 years with Ormus, it actually started out... Uh, reading an article in Nexus magazine on white powder gold, which was the first time that the word gold kind of really entered our life because we were kind of on the low end of things, you know. Anyway, um, that led us into looking into um, whatever was on the internet about gold, and Ormus in particular, that, that was where our interest was. Um, so over time we came across David Hudson and he made various references to gold and so on and we started to get an idea that there was a different form of gold so we have this little picture of metal in our mind we see it, we know it the banks love it and, you know, and so on and on so we, we know the popular conception of gold um, as we learned more and more about Hudson, we came across a fellow named Barry Carter, who was up to do a talk at the Toronto Dowsers on Ormus Gold. So we went to the talk. Um, it was interesting. We signed up for a two-day workshop with Barry in Cambridge, Ontario. And uh, we bought our first <coughs> Ormus there, which was Ormus Gold. So here is gold again. I took some that night at 9 o'clock. I had a teaspoonful. Um, my normal dream pattern was color dreams. I remembered most of what I dreamed, or a lot of it. But that night it shifted into super high-definition, three-dimensional textured dreams. It was absolutely incredible. 
And I realized at that point there's definitely something going on here. So we got involved with that. We did the workshop. We collected our material. We started to learn how to work with ornaments. And the first one we made was uh, Dead Sea Salt Extract, which they generally call Ormus Gold. So again, at this point, we're saying, fine, you know, it's Ormus Gold. All these people are saying, Hudson saying, and so on and so forth. And then we had, uh, we started making Ormus, and we started, we thought we are going to be teaching people how to do this. That was what we thought our purpose was going to be. And it led to, um, you know, presenting it here and there a little bit. Uh, we actually presented a little presentation to about eight people up at Wendy Oak's place with the Alma drawings about nine years ago. So again, it started to introduce us to the, for most people, the more unusual sides of life, which is why we're all here today. So uh, anyway, so so this went on, and we started to mail out some ornaments. People would know about it and ship it out and so on. So then we had a curiosity. There was a picture of it on the back of our table. We sent some ornaments to uh, a, a customer in New York City. And when they had arrived there, our bottles, which we wrapped in foil, were blown, blown apart. The bottoms were blown off the bottles. So we thought, well, that's curious. So we sent another order to replace it, and it arrived the same way. And we sent a uh, third order by surface post to Finland, which was two bottles. And those arrived with the bottoms blown off them because we were unsure about sending this stuff by air. Yeah, here's a copy of the picture. Rick, really just pass it around and look. So if you look closely at the picture, what you will see um, is there's actual gold residue on the aluminum foil, and there's gold residue in the bottom of the bottles. But when you make the Ormus, it literally looks like physical cloud. It's beautiful, it's perfect, it's white, it's lovely stuff. It takes two days for it to settle. It's so slow in settling, it takes two days for it to settle. <laughs> So where did all this stuff come from? I was talking with a guy then who was kind of interested. He had a bit of money, you know. And we thought, well, we'll just see where this goes. Who knows? But uh, I explained this to him, and it turned out that in his experience, he had um, a fairly high clearance because he did a lot of business in the U.S. And he had a fairly good clearance in their online security thing. So when we got the parcels back, um, you know, he said, well, you know, I can have this thing looked at for you. And uh, so I sent him a sample, and I sent another lab uh, sample of this through a professor at Trent University, and both of these samples disappeared. So we never did get them back, never did get an analysis, just nobody knew what happened to them. So at that point, here's another curiosity that's brought to the surface about gold again because it looks, for all intents and purposes, that that's gold residue on, on the, uh, the foil and so on. Anyway, um, you know, that kind of got shelled. We went on with our, our business, and uh, we came up with an idea of mixing the Ormus gold with magnesium oil, which is evaporation-concentrated seawater. So we made this material up because we thought, you know, you take the Ormus, you have the change in your dreams, um, you started, we started to notice other changes. And myself, uh, my routine, I'd go in, have a hot shower, come out, get dried off, get dressed, and off on my day, I'm more of a get-going-in-the-morning person. But um, one day the doors open in the bathroom, so the mirror's not all fogged up. So this day I'm looking, I thought, geez, 
probably 80% of the moles and skin tags I'd had since a teenager weren't there. And this was 10 weeks taking Ormus. So, you know, we started to see these things. Um, Ricky was dyslexic her entire life. And at 65 years old, by 10 months of taking Ormus, her dyslexia had melted away. We hadn't realized this was happening. No more confusion of lefts and rights. No more transposed phone numbers. Um, she ran a dog grooming business, so transposed phone numbers didn't work when you had to call a client to come and pick up their dog. It did work because she picked up new clients because some of those strangers had dogs too. So I mean, you know, everything comes out in the wash. So this was another thing that we started to notice, and then I noticed that uh, she's typing away in her typewriter to do her email. And when I met Ricky, she used to write a letter out by hand, dictate it into the computer, then run spell check and then email it. That was the way she functioned. And four or five months later, she's typing away. Never thought anything of it until the penny finally dropped. You know, about ten months later, when she guided me through Peterborough, which, if you know it at all, it's got streets in every which direction, and she didn't make any errors, and I didn't make any because she didn't tell me to go the wrong way. So, you know, we, we noticed these things starting to work. So, over time, as we keep researching into this material, you know, different ideas pop up, you know, and um, there, there's something called uh, philosophical gold. And people that study or get involved with alchemy or read about the old alchemists through time and so on, uh, they talk about philosophical gold and philosophical mercury and philosophical copper. And after a while, we started to realize that what they referred to as philosophical gold in particular was the Ormus gold. It was a different kind of gold. So as we worked with this and we made more Ormus, we started to try it out on our plants. And we've got pictures back there where you'll see comparatives with and without Ormus differences. We had plants here in Peterborough growing and flowering and blooming right into January in one year until we got 22 inches of snow. These things were still blooming right through multiple freezes, you know, minus 8, minus 9, minus 10, and they still had blooms on them. You know, so, so, so we started to see all these anomalies. We kept digging and digging and digging. And, you know, then I thought one day, well, let's, you know, gold's all permeated through our culture, and why? So you got stories like the gold at the end of the rainbow. You've got the um, leprechaun's pot of gold. You've got King Midas and everything that he touched turned to gold. You know, these are the gold, the, the goose that laid the golden egg. So for hundreds of years, these stories of gold and this value always permeated everything from our nursery rhymes to our adult stories, etc., etc. Gold in the Bible is mentioned 457 times. So in the Bible, we, again, one of the things we came across in um, Exodus 32, verse 20, Moses had gone up the mount to collect the tablets. The Israelites had collected their gold. They'd fashioned a golden calf, and they were having some great party. Moses comes down the mountain, and he's obviously upset. So like, face it, we're human. What would you do if all your people had gone nuts? But it says exactly, Exodus 32, verse 20, Moses smashed the calf, 
He burned the calf to a powder. Now how would you do that? He put the powder in the water and made the Israelites drink it. All right? That's exactly what he did, and it's exactly literal. So what Moses did, he made the white powder gold, had them ingest it, because shortly after that they found the promised land. But the promised land wasn't in another place. The promised land is here. It's always here. People travel the world over their life, and they always find the answers here. So this is what this is about, but it's been misconstrued, misinterpreted. The Catholics call it a punishment for the Jews, which is maybe what they wished it was. But... um, There's 36,000 different Christian churches today, and there's 36,000 different interpretations of the Bible, and then you got all the rest of the guys. Um, Gold is mentioned in the Quran 12 times, and all 12 times it's in relation to physical money. Um, Gold is mentioned, again, back in the Bible. The wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus when he was born. Why would you give baby a gold brick or a gold coin? makes no sense. What they did is they gave Jesus white powder gold, hormus gold, philosophical gold, to open his mind for the job he had ahead of him, which was quite significant. It was to change the entire thinking from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It was to change the whole perception of God from a warring history, Jewish history, to a modern, thoughtful contemplation of life and where to go from there. So, I mean, this is another one of the aspects where gold keeps arising. There's many other places in the Bible that if you simply replace that picture of the little bit of shiny metal with the white powder gold of life, many, many things start to take on a different connotation. As I say, there's 457 places. The problem is the word word gold has literally two different definitions. It's a physical material. Um, White powder gold, or what we call Ormus gold today, is also a physical material. And it's very interesting because it can be extracted from anything you can look at or see or touch in this room. Anything you're wearing, anything you own, it is absolutely everywhere. We extract it from ancient salts because that's the simplest way to do it. You have seen this a hundred times. If you put water in your freezer in ice cubes, a curiosity of the behavior of the Ormus gold is that as water freezes, it migrates out. So when you look at the ice cube in your freezer, artificial freezing freezes from the perimeter to the center. So the hormus migrates to the center of the ice cubes, and that's your white center. That's what you're looking at. So you've seen this. In nature, ice freezes from the top to the bottom. So in the case of water, your icebergs are water of which the the, the hormus has migrated out. So in the case of the, the poles, the north and south poles, there's vast amounts of this ornate material in the layer where the ice meets the water. And what happens there is there's vast amounts of living material. The ice worms grow there, the plankton, the zooplankton, the protozoa, 
and they literally feed the krill, which is the largest animal biomass on the planet. And yet, this is all done in temperatures, you know, 30 degrees Fahrenheit, zero Fahrenheit, and below. So it contravenes every single thing that we're taught, that everything happens that occurs quicker or higher at higher temperatures, you know. So it, it just brings into question that science and all these things that we've been taught since we were young is either incorrect or incomplete, at least in that capacity. So the more we started to, to work into this and learn more and more about gold, uh, more and more curiosities have come up. Now, there's a gentleman named John Maluski, who, uh, he's 87 or 88 today, he lives in uh, South Carolina. He spent his whole working life as a Los Alamos scientist and got interested in the ormic forms of minerals back about 25 years ago. It just came as an offshoot, and he's an open-minded guy, and he started digging around in this stuff. And um, his job originally, or one of the early jobs, he was growing monofilament crystals for NASA back in 1963. So we'll get in a little bit into that later. But what he was doing, he made a couple of interesting discoveries. And again, basically accidental. He was playing around with rock samples and so on back in the 90s. And these were rock samples that had tiny, tiny little gold crystals in there. So whatever work he was doing at the time, these were part of it. They ended up getting stored out in the backyard beside his garage in Albuquerque, where he was living at the time. And maybe 10 years later, he had occasion to go back through some of the old work that he was doing. And he brought a couple of these samples back into the house. And a couple that he had worked with hands-on quite a bit, he just thought, geez, that gold crystal looks a bit bigger than it used to be. And when he went back to his old photographical uh, records, they were. The gold crystals were bigger. And then when he started checking other photographic records with other samples that he'd worked with, maybe not quite as intensely, all of the gold samples in the stones that were sitting eight, eight, ten years behind his house by the garage, in all cases, the gold crystals were larger than they were in the photographs that were taken ten years previously. So how is this possible? It turned out to be a, an interesting discovery, but it didn't really go anywhere for him. He didn't know what to do with it. He mentioned it, he talked about it, he wrote a bit about it. He'd done a couple of videos, a few of his videos on the internet. And uh, anyway, it, it sort, of, sort of shelved then at that point. We, by that point, about 11 years ago, we were getting into the research and stuff on this. And it came across all this stuff that gold crystals grow. And around the same time, there was some reports that had come out that uh, were interesting because at uh, Fort Knox Repository in the U.S., they had found that there was a bacteria in the repository that was eating gold. Now, the bacteria is called Formicutes radiodurans, and that's its food. It actually originates in the mines in South Africa, 7,000 feet below ground, and it's a bacteria that eats and digests gold, transmutes it into something else, and craps out the remains. So obviously, they had this amazing, you know, this, this incredible valuation for the gold itself. 
Um, so what they did with this is uh, they decided in their wisdom that they should irradiate the gold supply at 3,500 times the level that would kill us and blast this bacteria to pieces. So they did this, and they took the samples of radiodurans back to the lab, I guess from all the different areas where they had to irradiate the gold, or whether they did it in one room, I don't know. And within 24 hours, this thoroughly blasted to pieces DNA of radiodurans had reconstructed itself and was now alive again in the lab. Now, they couldn't obviously bring the gold, so why was this stuff alive again? So we postulated on this, and we would douse on these, because there are no books. There was no information. There was bits and pieces from here and there. I have this peculiar mind that assembles anomalies and oddities. But anyway, so we would douse. That was our tool. We know, we'd sit down and we'd formulate the questions, and we would douse. And this idea popped up to one of us, I'm not sure which. Is there a field around the gold? Could the gold particle have a field around the gold? Because rookies work with energies, people have energies, we douse energies, we feel energies from water. I don't, I'm, I'm a crappy dowser and I don't feel energy. I guess I'm just too far on the left side. But anyway, so we ask these questions, and yes, gold absolutely has a field. So my next question, does, does copper have a field? Yes. And so it turns out that virtually every element of the periodic table, but especially the metals, all have a field around these metals. And I call it a flux field. So the particles of gold literally change into the ormic form of gold, and certain conditions, magnetic propensities, electrical light, causes some of the particles of Ormus to switch back into the physical gold. All right? so, so this was what we doused. So we doused. Did the gold Ormic field carry the consciousness with radiodurans back to the lab? It doused an absolute positive yes. So... Now we're looking at something here. So we're saying, all right, we know from John Maluski that gold grows. We know from the, the work with the radiodurans and the radiation that gold is consciousness. Right? So this backed everything up. So the next step of the cycle is if anything grows and has consciousness, which we now know that gold has, Radiodurans proved to be the natural predator for gold because anything that lives has a natural predator. It doesn't matter what it is. So gold, Aurora's gold, is alive and Vermicutes radiodurans is its natural predator. So it fits the whole life cycle. Two, two years ago, uh, we did the uh, Tesla conference in Albuquerque and a friend of ours had worked with John Maluski for seven years. By that point, John was actually making gold in his microwave at home with Mexican brown beer bottle glass mixed with magnetite and heated up to 2400 degrees in ceramic crucibles in the center of his microwave. 
Every Saturday he was out buying more microwaves because he was burning through them like crazy. <laughs> but it was cheap. Buy them at garage sales. Come home, make some gold, get another microwave. But what he was doing was producing pure gold. Now you cannot buy pure gold for any amount of money. You can buy 99.9%. If you've got a lot of money, you can buy 99.99%. I think the most pure Canadian gold product in the world today is a Canadian uh, gold coin. And it's 99.999, I think. The reason we found out, the reason came from another silly discovery. We had three gram pieces at the conference of pure 100% gold that John Maluski made. And guess what happens? Over six months, they evaporated. They literally evaporated. And that brought us to the understanding that gold is actually part of the Earth's natural weather cycle. Because it doesn't matter where you go on the planet, any drop of water, any particle of a plant, or any particle of soil will have a measurable amount of gold in the analysis. It may be in the parts of tens of billions, but it's there, and it's everywhere. So it has to be distributed by the Earth weather system. Now, another thing that happened earlier than this is uh, most people know about Zachariah Sitchin. Um, anybody that doesn't know about Sitchin? Okay. No. Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, Zachariah Sitchin wrote a so-called science fiction book back in the early 70s named The Twelfth Planet. And he wrote several more science fiction books after that. I believe he was a Russian-born American ancient linguist. He spent most of his time uh, working with ancient languages and he translated a huge number of the Sumerian tablets, which they were uncovered in Iraq and area, which they dated at something at five or 6,000 years BC. Um, when he translated these tablets, what he got was a collection of information that has, uh, it's phenomenal, it's literally changing the world. Because these translations of tablets were about the Anunnaki. And the Anunnaki, according to these translations, came to the earth some 432,000 years ago. And the purpose, the reason they came to the earth was very specific. The Anunnaki came to Earth to mine gold because their atmosphere was depleted. That was the specific translation of these tablets once they had a handle on them. And, you know, we puzzled over that for a long time. What a weird thing to say. What we realized is that natural cloud is Ormus precipitating out of the moisture in the atmosphere and some of this is Ormus gold, as well as the other element, elemental materials. So, you know, when we thought about that, and okay, so what, what do you do with this? So there's anomalies coming up on the internet here and there where people are playing around with microwaves and so on. And what we found was that if you take a water sample that you would use on your plants, divide it in two, Microwave half of that water up to a boil, let it cool down again, and now you use the two same original source waters on your plants, 
the microwave water will not support life. The regular water will. And they both started out as the same water. And what we found out is that the electromagnetic field generated by the microwave is literally repelling the ormic material out of the water. It's having an effect of repulsion. The mechanism for that is uh, it's pretty simple. We actually use it, if anyone knows anyone that's ever had magnetic therapies, mm -hmm. if you have a sore wrist, for example, and you put a wristband with a magnet on the sore wrist, and you wear it three or four days, and then you say, well, my wrist's no better, these guys are nuts, you just throw it out. But if you place the magnet adjacent to the area that's the affliction, the magnetic source will actually push ormus from your body away from it into the affliction, and that's why magnetic therapies work. It's all to do with where you position these materials in conjunction with the affliction. So starting to understand how these ormus materials, the, the white powders of these materials are affected, we start to understand why certain other things begin to work. And when you see these other things beginning to work, then you start to understand why. You know, it's a whole area of science that we're, we're not party to, they don't talk about. Well, when you start to extrapolate that information, nobody's been able to figure out what that meant. It looks like, from other information, Anunnaki had a thousand-year life cycle. They came to Earth, they wanted to mine gold because their atmosphere was depleted. Now, if gold, as we suspect, is part of the Earth's weather system, and what we're doing now is we are mining gold, all the gold in the world that's been mined in all of history is enough to fill about three Olympic-sized swimming pools, that's it. But if this is consciousness, we are literally lobotomizing our planet by alloying this gold with silver and making it permanent, that it cannot cycle through the Earth's system, which may be the reason the Anunnaki came here looking for more gold, is because they had already damaged their planet the way that we are in the process of damaging our planet. The problem is, I think, a lot of these common bylines that are out there, global warming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are bylines. We think the problem with global warming right now is microwave activity because there are now somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 20 to 30 billion microwave devices on our Earth right now. Enough that the Schumann frequency, or which is the oscillation of our atmosphere between the Earth and the ionosphere, should be 7.83 hertz. That's what it should be. That's what they believe it's always been. Today it's 16.3 hertz, more than double. And we think that this is a contributor to the agitations that people feel because we are tuned to this planet. Our alpha, beta, delta, and gamma brave wave, brain wave frequencies are tuned to this. We tune to one to sleep. We tune to another one to wake up. Our pineal gland is our master breaker. The melatonin puts us to sleep. The serotonin wakes us up. You put the cell phone to your head. You are now causing the pineal gland to produce more serotonin and less melatonin. You sleep with a cell phone under your pillow. 
I think we're down now to what, 11 or 12% of people are getting proper sleep at night. You know, 10 years ago, there was 16 or 17% getting proper sleep at night. They keep playing. These guys are going to go out. They'll get their degrees. They got their money. They got their jobs. They're going to play with whatever they can play with. I just found a whole bunch of patents where they were sending carrier 2 hertz frequencies on television sets back as far as 1969. And there's a whole series of patents on all of this stuff through the 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s. And a lot of these were to induce in the viewer a certain mindset and these things were likely added to certain commercial products so that you would watch this and you know, and it would induce you in one way or another. They figured some had to go buy their product, you know. So so these are all occurrences that have been used mostly for the goal of profit. So they will use whatever medium they can to get you to go and buy their stuff, right? Yeah, we, we know a, a gentleman named Preston Nichols. Some of you may be aware of him. He worked some 20-odd years in the Montauk Project in New York. But way back in the 1960s, he owned a company called Buddha Records, and they produced records for the, you know, the Beatles and Dave Clark Five and all that stuff, all the top-end stuff back then. Preston was an interesting guy. He was a very intuitive kid. He's in his 71 or 2 now. But um, he ended up getting him a, himself a job at the Boston Pops because of an observation he made on a technical problem they had when he was on a school field trip to visit the Boston Pops and the mics were all vibrating. He was the 13-year-old kid that had the idea to hang the mics from the ceiling on rubber because when the band was playing, they were shaking the floor and the mic shook and they didn't work right. Anyway, so that, that got him started into his, his whole life with that. But um, anyway, he came up with an idea in 1967, and they were producing a popular record, which was a 45, which was going to go out. And he thought, he just had this idea. So what they did is they, the, the girl was in the booth singing a song. They recorded the song, and he was recording it on a double-head tape recorder. So there was only one head recording the song, and the second head... He just sat there and he concentrated on that head and he concentrated on a phone number for a New York radio station. And they recorded the song. Didn't say anything, just concentrated on it. So the song went out in 1960, I forget what it was, he would tell you. And hit the radio station, started to play around, and within about five hours, the radio station had 2,200 calls to that phone number and he was simply thinking that phone number into the magnetic pickup head, and it got recorded into the record. Nobody could hear it, but people were coming up with that phone number from listening to the song and calling into the radio station. So even by the 60s, all these people were working on all kinds of things, subliminal carrier waves and information carrier waves and things like this. Anyway, the Hadron Collider is this enormous cyclotron built with a combination of the European Union and it is cut, it's actually it's a 17 kilometer underground um, circular device for speeding up hydrogen molecules to run them around and smash them. Fermi Labs used to have one in the States. 
These things will magnetically speed hydrogen particles around, smash into another atom, bust it to pieces, and then they will read the residual information that comes off this to try and discern whatever it is they're trying to discern. Um, all of the man-made, supposedly man-made, radioactive elements above uranium, which is 92 on the periodic table. So you get into all that other stuff, like americium, darmstadium, um, uh, plutonium, all these things are highly dangerous radioactive particle emitting materials. All right, that's what they are. They do not exist in nature above uranium. All right. Anyway, so these were created for wars and so on, and they use plutonium and so on for nuclear weapons and all the rest of it. So this was the great purpose from the 1940s was to create these materials. Okay, let's just take a little break there before it gets any more technical, and that gives me a chance to bring you up to date with the news. Now, uh, in September, coming up on the 15th and 17th, we have the annual British Society of Dowsers Conference, and this year they're returning to Stamford Court in the University of Leicester, which is a lovely venue, and speakers include Willem Witteveen, on the Library of Giza, I hope I pronounced that name correctly. Uh, we have Anne Ludgowski on Animal Communication, and likewise on the name there. Uh, Jeanne Bug on Sound Resonance in Healing, and Sylvia Frank on Dowsable Patterns in Water, and finally Thomas Warrior on Building Biology. So that's the main speakers. Uh, I'm also going to be doing a workshop both the Saturday and Sunday, so hope to see you there. Now, if you're in the London area, you might be interested to learn that I am going to be tutoring all the BSD Earth Energy series of courses for the rest of the year there. And the first foundation course, that's Dowsing for Beginners, is this coming weekend, so you probably missed that if you've just downloaded this podcast. Uh, but I'll be back with Earth Energies 1, that's Introduction to Earth Energies, that's on the 1st and 2nd of September, EE2, Geopathic Stress, on 14th and 15th of October, and EE3 on Geopsychic Stress is on the 11th and 12th of November. More details on all those at BritishDowsers.org. And I'm also running a few courses of my own. I'll be doing the EE1 Earth Energies at Torfiken on 21st and 22nd of September. And Torfiken is a small village that's located between Bathgate and Linlithgow in central Scotland. It has some absolutely fascinating Earth Energies to douse. We'll visit the Neolithic Henge at Cairnpapple Hill and the Knights of Spitalers Preceptory at Torfiken. Both of these sites have very large dragon currents to explore and it's a great opportunity to douse these uh, sinuous energy lines. I'm also going to be running an EE5 working with power centres in Northumberland on 25th and 26th of November. Uh, that one is going to be a very small group and is already well booked. But if you're interested, uh, send me an email, and if there's enough interest, I can look into finding a larger venue for it. You can find out more about what I'm up to on my website, which is westerngeomancy.org. Hi, I'm Claire Hedin, and I am a sound healer and an artist, and I'm crazy about consciousness. And you are listening to Adventures in Dowsing from the British Society of Dowsers. And now, let's get back to Dave. One of the things that we found dowsing, which totally blew me away, we've been to Saratoga Springs in the U.S. There's a whole bunch of different springs. There's 26 of them there right now. We have made ornaments from almost all of these springs, and we go through our procedure, our wet method. We extract it. 
And rather than having to send these things to labs all the time for hundreds of dollars worth of analysis and so on, Ricky will sit down and she will put out our periodic table and she will douse the analysis of the water from the particular spring so that we get an idea of what kind of concentrations of the orbic materials we're getting. So we will get derivatives of what's in that water. Anyway, she's doing one of the waters from one of the springs and she douses element 110, Darmstadium. So I thought, there's no way in the world that you can have a man-made radioactive material coming out of a spring in Saratoga. So we sort of said, well, let's leave it for a few days. Something's acting on something. Some energy's going on or something. Four days later, she sits down and goes through the whole thing again. Element 110, Darmstadium, shows up again. All right. So how is this possible? I'm not going to argue with the dowsing. I'm going to assume it's correct. But why? How could this be? So we start looking through stuff, and I start reading you know, a little bit more on the cyclotrons. When I was 15 was my first awareness of this in science class. They're talking about particle physics and all the rest of it. And one thing that struck me odd back then was the fact that how can you smash two things together and create something? Now, this was the terms the scientists always used. We have created something, speeding something through a cyclotron. So you're smashing two things and creating. It's like hitting a hammer on an egg. How can you create something? And then the penny dropped again, because by this point we're understanding all of these aspects of the ormic materials and their behaviors and so on. And what we figured might be happening, and then Ricky doused on this again, all these materials above 92 already exist, but they are all in their orbic condition, which means they are in their stable condition. Our inert gases are so stable they react with nothing. If you put electricity to them, it fluoresce. That gives us our neon lights and our blue xenon lights and krypton lights, etc., etc., etc. So anyway, so what we realize is when they fire these hydrogen particles through these cyclotrons, they are hitting something they don't know is there. In the case of Darmstadium, it was discovered in Darmstadt, Germany. That's why they named it that. They were running a cyclotron and fired a particle and hit a totally stable material that had probably been there for millions of years. But when they hit it, they broke it. They destabilized it, and they measured the damaged read-off of a three-second half-life of one isotope and a three-minute half-life of another isotope, patted themselves on the back and said, hey, we just created another material. And they didn't. They only destabilized it. We could possibly have 600 elements, but they all exist in their stable, peaceful, ormic condition until us idiots get around there and hit them with a hydrogen hammer at the speed of light and damage them. And then you read, you read the residue. It's like a car wreck. You know, once you get there after the wreck, I mean, there's some information, but not all of it. Or Ormus is in everything. We can extract Ormus from water, from especially springs. Ormus is especially rich in spring water. The closer to the source, the more you get. One of the springs in Saratoga, the first one that was shown to the white man in 1785, <coughs> the Indians had been using this as a healing spring for time immemorial. It's called High Rock Spring there. 
and it just came out of the side. Um, the Canadian shield extends down across the Adirondacks are actually part of that Canadian shield cluster of ancient rock. The edge of it is a fault zone, and that's where Saratoga Springs are. So a lot of these water samples are coming out from a very ancient genetic fault and different levels, different times. Every time they drill something somewhere else, they've had, since they started to commercialize it in 1815, they've had 262 different springs where they're analyzing different content. So, and it was a healing spring for 150 years. They bottled and shipped water all over the world, and finally this got shut down when Rockefeller became governor in New York in 1964. He obviously owned a drug company, so he cut all the funding of the Saratoga Springs, and it just virtually disappeared. It's slightly <coughs> and slowly starting to come back now. We've extracted uh, very significant amounts of ormus from urine. It's, it's something that passes through us continuously. The, the way it works, um, we need our metals, so we need our iron, our selenium, our copper, our zinc. Um, you know, we, we need all these metals. The way it works, when we digest foods with these metals in it, the hydrochloric acid in our stomach dissolves these metals and you're now, you have metals, metallic salts at pH 1.5. Once the digestion's complete, the gallbladder is a control valve for the liver which produces pH 10 plus material and that enters through the duodenum, and an acid-alkali reaction occurs before that digested material goes into the small intestine. And when that acid-alkali reaction occurs, the metallic salts are now dropped into their ormic fifth state, chemically neutral form. Because metals are toxic to us, but we actually render the metals into the biological form that we require, and in us, these materials are used for our messaging system, neurally, intercellularly, and interbacterially. So they are the facilitators of our internal messaging system, not just us, plants, animals, everything that lives. So that's our mechanism, and this is not taught, not at all, anywhere. So, But this is what's going on. You ask a doctor, he says, oh, well, that's so that the stomach acid won't dissolve your intestines. Well, that's a good answer, you know. That's like, you know, why is the car on your foot? Oh, I didn't move it. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, so when we start, to, again, to look into things that we think we already know, we start to find out that everything that we think we know is incomplete and it's not appropriately presented. For example, Ricky and I have a new definition for facts because the old one doesn't work. A fact is something that two people agree to look no farther into. <laughs> Always. Always. You know, and, and we, we've come up with these, these little rules. I mean, and you gotta, we got to rethink everything because language is the tool we use to explain things like I'm using right now. Language is also the tool we use to not explain things. So it depends on the intent. Like to me, this is in my little mind, this is duality. It doesn't matter. You can have a knife to cut your cheese, or you can have a knife to kill your neighbor. 
You can have a car to get to work, you can have a car to, you know, whatever. You know, so it's always in the intent. Everything has a good side and a bad side, an upside and a downside. It really doesn't matter what it is. But what we have to stop doing is accept things that we've taken as givens because they aren't. We're only accepting that as a fact because we're not looking any farther into it. So it's all perception. All right? The problem we have is we have to learn to accept the world as it is, not what we want it to be. And once we start to accept things for what it is, that, I think, is the major component of the ascension. See, th th this is the whole thing. It's just, we got to put these things into perspective. You know, and, and all we're doing, our avenue with the Ormus and learning about the gold and, and, and what these things are, is a piece of what we are. It's a piece of what everything God made is. And everything is done with reference to the intelligence of God or deity or whatever you conceive God to be. A benevolent intelligence. Right? And we're given all these models. We're given Ormus. We're giving us. We're given our house. Everything that we are is a model of something smaller and a model of something bigger. And we have the intellect to look at the patterns. We don't need to go around the world. Everything is here. The only rule we follow, spirit makes it simple, man makes it complicated. All right? And downstream of that, there's a couple of very simple things. There's an old saying, if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. Right? So we have to learn to discern what these things are. Anybody you meet in your whole life has one of they either will make money from you or they will help you. That's it. There is no more complicated than that. You just have to discern which one of those two things it is and then enter into the agreements with that individual. So it is simple. Spirit make if it's too complicated, you're going the wrong direction. Back up, simplify it, and away you go. Ormus is the form of elements of the periodic table, and they work like the telephone poles delivering the electricity to your house. If they're not there, you're not going to get the electricity. But the poles are not sacrificed in the process of delivery. Okay? So we get our Ormus materials through our diet. We cannot render it from our diet if it's not in the food that we're starting with. And this is what a depleted field is. They add three ingredients back to the field, we need 60. Alright? So we're getting less of it the other side of it is the electromagnetic fields that we are getting exposed to are physically repelling the material just like a magnet. When you bring the cell phone to your head, that wave is 4.8 inches, 2.45 gigahertz, and that is sending the ormic material away. It's being repelled by the magnetic field, so the collateral damage that that's doing, like your microwave oven, it's partly cooking your brain, it's also debilitating the communications part of the cleanup system that will clean up that damage. That's why it's a double whammy. You're causing the damage and preventing the cleanup. And as we get more and more cordless phones broadcast 24 hours a day, if you're having problems sleeping, get it out of your bed or get it out of your house. Today, 
there are 22 and a half million brain cell uh, brain tumors being serviced today. And that doesn't count where there's no records in the third world. It's probably the same again, because now they're all using cell phones. They're doing a number of things. They're doing the physical problem with the tumors. They are also interfering with the frequencies that our bodies work at. We function between zero and 100 hertz. All right? Our healing ratios work in there. Our bodies are actual, literal semiconductors. Robert O. Becker, in his book, The Body Electric, goes into all of this in detail. It's an interesting read. And our ability to heal is interesting because the electricity will flow in one direction during the day and it will reverse direction at night. And this is how he was able to demonstrate a bone knits whenever the pieces are broken and not together. It's almost like painting the bone closed with back and forward strokes on a continuing basis that changes from day to night. All right? So when we have things interfering with our function, for example, Magda Havis here in Peterborough had a gentleman uh, who was electromagnetically sensitive. He was, every time he was exposed to stuff, so she got him on the table in the lab, and every time he couldn't hear, he was on earmuffs and everything, Every time a cell phone went off within 10 feet of this guy, his heartbeat went up 100 beats a minute. When they shut the phone off, it took a few minutes, it would settle, it would settle, it would settle, and that was that. And this happened over and over and over again. Uh, dark field microscopy. There is a movie called Take Back Your Power. It has dark field microscopy in the movie. And what happens... Right, you've got a magnetic field with your cell phone or your Wi-Fi. It doesn't matter what it is. The mechanism. This is what I, I need to know how things work. This is my bugaboo. You have hemoglobin in your blood. It's the red blood cells. The reason it's red is because it has iron. It carries the oxygen to everything in your body. That's iron. Put a magnetic field beside the iron. What happens to iron? All right? <laughs> Within 10 seconds of a magnetic field being in proximity to you, the distance, right, the farther it is, the less effect. What happens is the hemoglobin collects into balls. It's called rouleau. That's the technical term. It collects into balls. Now, the hemoglobin should be free-floating through the blood. It dispenses the oxygen to the blood plasma to the appropriate cells. Now, if it's all collected into a ball, the surface transfer area of that blood is reduced by up to 90%. So, you get diseases like cancer. That's an oxygen deprivation problem. <coughs> Throw a cell phone on top of it. Now, that rouleau will dissipate. It takes about three hours. So, if you have four, phone, four cell calls, even if it's only for 10 seconds, at Four different periods in your day, you could go 12 hours with serious oxygen deprivation. Similarly, if you use a Beamer mat or an MRS 2000 mat and look, this stuff's all on the net, and look at the dark field blood microscopy once you're on that Beamer mat. These are pulsed electromagnetic field mats that you can buy for your house. You just lie down on it, turn it on for 8 minutes or 12 minutes, whatever. These will actually reverse the effect of the EMF rouleau in about eight minutes. If you do nothing, it takes three hours. 
We really have to wrap up. Thank you so very much uh, for participating in the uh, walking encyclopedia here of amazing <laughs> topics. Yeah. Well, as you can hear, we ran out of time on that session. So thanks very much to Dave Kane for that very interesting talk and for letting us record it for the podcast. That's going to do us for this episode. If you have any comments about the show that you would like to share, send us an email to podcast at adventuresanddowsing.com or you can leave a comment on particular episodes on the website at adventuresanddowsing.com And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please take a moment to write us a good review on iTunes. Every little helps. So thanks for listening. Many thanks to Hilary Brooks, Ian Pegler and Not For Pussies for the music. And make sure you join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing.